it acts as a three-dimensional cinema where the movie watches you. The main structure is interconnected fiberglass poles that in turn stretch the fabric. That fabric eventually is the skin, the veil of the installation, actuated by the human presence and by the interaction of the human with it. It has a little peeking eye holes that invite the participants through blinking light and sound patterns to come in. And upon interaction, the participants' eyes are captured and then projected in real time on the skin of this body. The installation's light and sound pattern attract the participant to come closer, to approach, to engage in that sensorial conversation. I'm Nina Friedman, and this is Wearing. Wearing explores where we are. It is dedicated to those who believe in the inherent right of belonging and all the ways we feel we belong and connect to ourselves, to each other, and the spaces that hold the stories where all of this comes alive, where each experience of belonging is a work of art, created by chance or by design. Dare I ask, is belonging where you are, not what matters most? Wearing is the spatial story. Welcome. I am speaking today with the prolific architect, Lucia Tsafulia. She is the co-founder of PLB Architectural Design and Research Studio and teaches at the College of Architecture and the Built Environment at Thomas Jefferson University, where she has co-founded the Synesthetic Research and Design Lab. The conversation you're about to hear covers various multidisciplinary projects she is working on. We will speak first about the book she has edited and curated titled Transient Spaces and her devotion to exploring belonging for migrant and refugee populations. Her other works examine the connections between design, technology, and science, specifically the human body and its sensory interactions with objects and place. Her design work has been exhibited in international design venues, and the project we will speak about is now being exhibited at the Venice Biennale. Welcome, Lucia. It's so nice to have you. Thank you, Nina. Thanks for inviting me. It's such a pleasure. I'm really excited to talk with you. To begin, because this podcast is predicated on home and belonging in many different ways, can you give me a sense of your origins, where you were born, you're an international citizen as I see it. Yeah, I mean, not as much as others, but my story is, is fairly linear, I guess. I'm from Greece. I grew up in a small city under the name Keratsini, which is in the western part of Piraeus municipality. Piraeus is the big port city of Athens, so it's by the water. And then as a college student, I went on to live in the center of Athens. It's not that far away from where I was born and raised. And I lived for many years in the neighborhood of Exarchia, which is a really interesting neighborhood. It's a very active, sociopolitically speaking neighborhood. It's the area where all of the urban arrest is always being manifested. So I was in the middle of action. It was also the area where our school was located. The National Polytechnic University of Athens is spread out in some suburbs, but specifically the School of Architecture is in the very center. And that was always a political decision that was taken and, and there has been efforts in the years to move it outside of the center but uh, you know the students and I guess the professors have been fighting their right to the city which was very nice 
And then I did spend uh, a summer in Lisbon, in Portugal. Yeah, it was incredible. I went there with the Erasmus Academic Exchange Program. And that was the very first time of developing a sense of hominess outside of my country of origin. And then that sense got amplified, of course, in 2010, when I came to New York City to do my master's. I did the Advanced Architectural Design Program at Columbia University in New York. Since then, I've been based in the States. I was thinking that the sense of belonging is lately a feeling or a question maybe I have been confronted with quite a bit, more than earlier on, quite a bit, yeah. Yes, and I think it's also in your work, right, which we'll talk about soon. You came to the States really to study, and you stayed. Was that a decision in the beginning? Yeah, things happened, actually. It definitely wasn't the plan, by no means. When I came, I didn't have any expectations after my studies. The only thing I really was interested in is this idea of discovering something different, culturally, but also, I guess, I was excited with the program. I was excited with the more experimental point of view. It wasn't a European program, so for me it was like a big cultural change, both in terms of architecture, but also in terms of the life. And then by the end of the program, I guess it came naturally to kind of like stay around and see what's up, understand the city a bit more. And, you know, the first year became a second year and the second year third. And then you find yourself 10 years after wondering, you know, where am I? What am I doing? So one thing brings the other. I mean, I met my partner here and, and suddenly we have a baby here and, and life moves on. And, and we still don't feel that, that that's the place, right? We love New York and we love the States. But at the same time, it's still that kind of weird understanding of culture, the right to be active participant of a society socially, politically, economically. I'm not a citizen, so I don't vote in the state. So that's something that sort of cost me. I mean, there's a sense of belonging, but at the same time, my participation is limited. So that's always a very important consideration to that sense of hominess and that sense of having the right to decide and your voice to be heard. I felt after I lived in Europe for a long time that from that point on, I became a person of two worlds. When yeah. I lived in Europe, often I had nostalgia for New York and not only the people, the energy, the way of being in New York, where London felt very sleepy, actually. For a lot of people, it's not, but compared to New York, it was pretty sleepy. And then when I came back to New York, there was such a nostalgia for Europe. I always felt split. It's you just live with that. Yeah, it's very well put. That split is very well put. But also the way you describe it, like the smells, the sounds, the energy, all of those sort of things are right. very important. They do make a difference. I also think that the very sense of topos, when I think of Greece, I think, of course, of my family and my friends and my loved ones and my culture. But that very sense of topos, like the land, it sounds romantic, but as I grow, I'm very connected to it, like the smell of the land or, or the smell of the sea and, and things like that. It's, it's pretty incredible how someone ends up missing these things. You're not the first Greek person that has told me that, actually, about the connection to the land. Let's jump into some of your work. You edited this amazing book, Transient Spaces. What drove you to get involved in that book? It starts with an interest and having always very connected and very sensitive to concepts of migration, specifically forced migration, concepts of displacement. They're not concepts, they're realities, actually. Keratsini, the city I grew up in, where my family home is, and then Drapetsona, where I spent all of my school years as a student, as a teenager, are areas that migrant families were heavily relocated during the 1992 minor Asia catastrophe. 
that was a huge, huge refugee movement. Actually, I remember I had classmates and friends that had roots in Armenia, in southern uh, Russia, Ukraine, Crimea. And still I have dear friends and family that are from Pontus, which is at the source of the Black Sea, magic places in my mind from all of the stories I've heard. And then in 2011, where the Syrian war migration crisis manifested, I was shocked, of course, and terrified of the bad practice and, and the inhumane handling of a situation from many powers involved uh, in the war industry and then the host uh, countries, uh, humanitarian agencies and humanitarian governance, as it sometimes becomes. So, you know, all of these forces immobilized me as they immobilized many people around the world. And then during the spring of 2017, that I had the pleasure to teach an advanced design studio at the Peter School of Architecture at the City College of New York. And that was a faculty research-led studio. So I developed the studio syllabus under the theme Transcend Spaces, and we investigated how we can see the idea of shelter, how we can build shelter in context of crisis. And then the winter of 2016, that was just prior to the spring studio, I was in Greece, in my hometown, and I visited the newly created refugee camps. And then I used as part of the design studio were the Schisto and Skaramaga for people that might be interested in looking at them more closely. So those are again in the Western part of Athens. And I was in touch with a dear friend engineer that was working on the ground and in the refugee camps. And he was a member of the Danish Refugee Council that was an NGO operating within these camps. And I also was brought in touch through him with another engineer that was the deputy director at the time of the reception and identification service at the Greek Ministry of Migration Policy. And then after I had a lot of discussions with them and I was immersed in the camps, in the making of the camps, the, the social life, all of the problems, obviously around the idea of making a camp, which is very problematic. And even people that work within the camps recognize how distorted this as an idea is. I also touched space with a colleague. He's an architect that was a member of the Norwegian Refugee Council. That was an emergency standby roster, and he was deployed by the UN in several places. So I incorporated all of these voices and all of this experience these people had in the studio that marked the beginning of the Transcend Spaces book. Now, with the conclusion of the studio, I worked together with Samantha Onk, who is one of the co-editors, and was a fantastic student of mine in that studio. I invited her to keep with me in the effort of inviting more people to contribute. We created an international call for contributions, essays, micro-narratives, projects. So she was there all along. And then in the process, I also joined forces with my dear colleague and comrade Suzanne Wines, who is also co-editor. A bit later, she also worked with her students on developing educational tools of transition. So the three of us curated this work and, and we started creating that forum, that open dialogue around the themes explored in the book. Wow. I had no idea about all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the story that gave birth to the work. In the book, though, it's a collection of essays, but it's not just a recording of information of what existed, right? It was a call, of, I imagine, for questioning about resiliency. So what was the intention behind that call? But also afterwards, what was the impact of these ideas put forward by all these writers? What came out of it? 
the call was very open-ended and that was very intentional as well because we didn't want to do a book with chapters. We thought that that was counterintuitive to the theme. We put out general themes for investigation and, you know, belonging was one of them. Participation was another. In a way, we also didn't want to only attract designers. In a way, coming from the design standpoint, we did want to have works that might be more historical or more sociological or more anthropological. So we did want to have voices that come from very different backgrounds. The book was always in question for us. Will it be a book, meaning will it be a static body of work or can it be more dynamic? And we ended up really solidifying it in a book as the beginning of something else. The last two years we have organized a series of discussion panels. We have been very, very lucky to have very incredible voices talking about these themes. Michael Sorkin, who of course we miss dearly, we're still in disbelief of his passing, but he has been really instrumental in all of the discussions and in the making of this work. We were happy to hear Sansen's point of view. Raul Merota contributed. Son Anderson, the creator of New York City's MoMA, incredible exhibition. Havar Bravey, amongst many others. Julio Salcedo. They were all part of that evolving forum. So the book is the beginning of a series of discussions. And that's the evolution of that static format to something more dynamic. And we hope we can continue. Through all of those discussions, there was a lot of back and forth. We had people that we invited, the people I knew that they are working on these themes, that they are advocates and activists, and they are very, very active. We have people that they were working on policy making. they were working incomes on the ground. But also we had historians that were looking actually through the themes, through analyzing moments in history that repeat themselves in a way. To me, a few, just to the second part of your question, a few of the basic ideas that are emerging and they are very important, I feel them very personally, is definitely the need to support more, more loudly, more meaningfully and more in general, the expanding network of all of those many bottom-up informal initiatives that are there they are taking place quite a lot but we don't know about them there are many times a response to practices of humanitarian governance that are very, very meaningful and they have zero financial support they happen through the support of the individual that comes and saves a collective so i think that's one of the key ideas that keeps emerging that keeps surfacing by hearing stories by analyzing our situations, by kind of like having a forensic view to those issues. Many of those ideas of activism are emerging, and it's a pity because they are not known. People don't know that many of those collectives are doing so much work behind the scenes. Obviously, the main output of this effort is that the refugee question has no one answer. We can't talk about solutions necessarily, but we can talk about agency, right? So it's not about generating a series of solutions, but really understanding a series of practices. I remember Dean Sarp, in one of her discussions, he brought up a very interesting point that, well, designers can do that much, and we need to understand what we can do. So that's the beginning point, because many times we like to dream beyond our capacity. And that's an asset we might have, but at the same time, we don't sometimes realize where should we stop and really collaborate with other people, listen more. And he was actually calling for an urgent contribution to the politically charged debates around the figure of the refugee. Those are very, very difficult, multifaceted approaches that are required to address those questions. It's very hard to talk about displacement and belonging by identifying the lenses of a refugee versus a migrant. I mean, these are really key identifications that have been created. They're all policy creations. 
Raul Merota, as a last point that I carry with me, is his ideas of impermanence and how impermanence obviously is bigger than permanence and bigger than all of us and, and how we are often obsessed with permanence, but how can we really see transience as an opportunity and as a mobilizing force? This debate is a vehicle for academics in, in sociology and in architecture and various disciplines to speak to this issue. Does the debate after the book include the refugees? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, in a way, I was happy that this work was initiated where it was initiated, because in the Spitzer School of Architecture, specifically the students selected my studio, those students all had a story of immigration, right? So that, to me, started the work in a very interesting way. I also have to say that through the partners and, and people that were always along the way in the making of the work, there was always a pushback as, you know, okay, you're academics, you want to make a book and I'm going to help you, but what else? What comes after that? So there was always been there the criticism. Okay, we all gathered together, but eventually who are we including? What voices can be included? Yeah, so then we did conduct interviews. I was very lucky to be connected with these people and be able to to be in the refugee camps, to talk to people, to understand a little bit from the inside the many, many complex situations that are arising and they are not only political, they're actually many times social between the different cultures that are put together. When you put an Afghan person next to a Syrian person, that already means conflict. You need to hear those voices, as you very well say. In the book, we don't have an essay written by them. But we do have interviews. We have interviews with those who have been working on the ground with these very people. These are the people that raise the most criticism to the effort. But obviously, they were also the people that were the key supporters of it. So I'm indebted to them. I feel very lucky to have had all of those critical voices. For many years, I worked with Shigeru Ban very closely. And some of these questions came up also in talking with him. So for example, what he would do is he would always go to the place, let's say if there was a natural disaster, I mean, often it was as a result of a natural disaster, such as a tsunami or an earthquake, he would go and talk to the people and really find out what they needed. Because he said that often people think people need shelter immediately, and that certainly is a need, but it may not be what they are asking for. And sometimes the shelter is then relocated to a far place. Like there was one area where they did fishing in a certain area, but the shelter was relocated somewhere else where they couldn't actually have a livelihood because they couldn't be fishing. So it didn't work. When Italy had an earthquake, for example, he didn't go in and build shelter. He realized they needed a little concert hall. So he made a temporary concert hall really to lift the spiritual hope there was another church in Japan where he did that too. In Africa, he went in and they were being given these shelters by the UN, the mm. tent. And the tent had aluminum poles, so it didn't work. Maybe you know all of this, right? They sell it for money. And then when they didn't have that, they started cutting down the wood in the forest and they deforested the area around it. So the solution really was going in and looking what really works it was very interesting to talk with him about all of this and how he went in on the ground, talking to the people first, what they need, and then having them yeah. build it with him. Yeah, I think this is all key. And what you were just saying about shelter, how can we help as designers? These are super important ideas to explore. I remember in Greece, 
2017-2018, it was incredible what was happening. The influx of people, it was incredible. There were people coming from the islands to the Piraeus port, which is where I grew up, and my family would go there at night to help people, and they took in their house for many months, actually, almost a year, a family. There was a girl there with a newborn. She gave birth in the trip. So those little stories of what can you do you first need to be on the ground. You first need to understand there's so much residential stock in the center, in the hub, where life is taking place, where human support can be offered. And then this idea of relocating everyone somewhere in a camp, this is really not the solution. So many of those ideas are explored in the book by academics, by historians, but they do have a very real basis, a basis of us all witnessing the failure of such solutions or practices. And actually still now in my grandmother's house, there is a refugee family that lives the past two years and many other families did the same. So I think these are the stories that eventually need to be heard, not by designers, by everyone, but we as designers, I think we need to, to expand our tools to really realize those very important narratives and how those narratives can inform us in the making of shelter. It's a difficult and complex issue. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Someone can never feel comfortable, you know, for just investigating it. I mean, we should all feel unsettled. I am speaking today with Lucia Zafulia, whose works have focused both on belonging for refugee populations and with the connections between design, technology, and science, specifically how the human body interacts with objects and place. Actually, you're working on a few things right now. You have a wonderful work, which is now in the Venice Biennale, which is part of the European Cultural Center exhibition. This is a very different kind of project, but it's not something that you haven't been developing for a while as well. You're working with the Thomas Jefferson University in collaboration mm -hmm with the Synesthetic Research and Design Lab. And you've created this traveling installation. It's around the concept of synesthesia. So please define synesthesia first. Sure. So synesthesia is a neurological condition in which stimulation of one sensory pathway leads to an automatic connection with another sensory pathway. So when one sense is activated, another unrelated sense is activated at the same time. People hear sound and instantaneously see yellow or they see red. So there is a connection of senses that is triggered through a series of neurons within our brain. Now, the title of our work is less of a direct reference to that actual medical neurological condition. It's mostly interested in investigating the combined sensorial and cognitive aspects that make up an experience. And eventually, what are the potentialities of those aspects? So we're creating a symbolic connection to the notion of synesthesia. Yeah, you talk about sense connections, but also disconnections. Correct. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting point. Can you describe what the installation looks like? And for the listeners here, we will have images of it. You will have links to the website to take a look at it. And you can also refer to it while we're speaking right now. To start with, it's a responsive installation. It responds to the presence of the human participation. Formally, it's conceived as a deformed sphere 
It's a central node of multiple connections that is shaped as a blob. It acts as a three-dimensional cinema where the movie watches you. Severino, my partner, who conceived the idea many years ago, but then together we developed it. We started developing it a couple of years ago. And, and he always suggests this idea, this relationship of you sort of participating with that three-dimensional cinema, but also that movie sort of participating you from the inside out. It's approximately nine to ten feet. The main structure is six crossing triangulated aluminum poles. They are kind of like the legs that hold together a series of rings. These are interconnected fiberglass poles that in turn stretch very tightly the fabric. So that fabric eventually is the skin somebody would experience. It's the veil of the installation and also it's that analog domain that hosts all of the projections that come from the actual projectors, but also come from all of the light effects that are happening within that bigger blob. That skin is actuated by the human presence and by the interaction of the human with it. It has a series of portals, little peeking eye holes, and, and those are the eyes of the installation that invite the participants through blinking light and sound patterns to come in. And upon interaction, the participants' eyes are captured and then projected in real time on the skin of this artificial body. I would say that the installation's fluctuating light and sound patterned effects attract the participant in different ways to come closer, to approach, to engage in that sensorial conversation. But also the installation glows from within. It emits synthesized electronic pulses and different tones. And if no one is near it, like no human presence is around, it calls out for attention. It lets you know that it's waiting. And once you get closer to it, it starts emitting a series of sounds together with light patterns. The sound was a very important component of the installation. I think we spent a tremendous amount of time trying to test and experiment. Yeah. So I actually didn't realize that it had these little sounds that attract people. If I was to describe it the way I see it, so I come to a space, it's white, nine foot by 10 foot sphere, and it's got little holes in it. And it's making a little sound, right? A little light is flickering. I come near it, and then it gets more active and more excited. I'm not the only one who approaches. There are many holes and different heights. It's being activated by many people simultaneously. When I look into these little holes, my eyeball is projected on the interior skin, but it's visible from the outside as well. And there's mm -hmm. a sense of, depending on how close and how far I go and how much I blink, there's this movement on the inside of many eyeballs together as if we're almost under a microscope. So it's almost like a horror film <laughs> sometimes, but it's super interesting. As you were talking, you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about the mating call of birds. They have this language and then you can hear them get more excited when they come close. You attract and then you capture and it becomes a living organism for anyone else that is there simultaneously. I'm aware of them, correct? Or you might not be because you might not realize that you're part of that installation. You might not realize that in real time while you're actually understanding the inner works of the installation, part of your body, specifically your eyeball, is becoming part of the installation itself. You might not know. You don't uh, see it? I don't think you have the capacity to see really. You might capture something on the skin, but the inner part is very busy as well. It's a very complex artificial world. So very easily somebody can get lost in that inner work 
of the installation without realizing that they become part of the installation itself. So it is a collective body of bodies, but not necessarily everyone discovers that. In a way, it is a collection of organs that are projected, they are layered, they are superimposed on top of each other, and they make that collective self. But somebody might realize it in real time, somebody not. There's also a live component. So there's a live streaming on the web that in a way documents all of those many interactions and then somebody in real time can really understand whether the installation has been very busy or very quiet and so on. An infinite scale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea of territoriality was definitely an important one we wanted to address. It might not allow physical bodies within, but it does absorb them virtually. So for us, it is a message for our times. And again, we do want to construct a narrative that moves away from the idea of form and more towards the idea of a performance, bodies that generate space rather than uh, a form that generates space. We also did want to evoke what is a responsive environment after all? What does it mean? Where does it come from? You know, what is smart? We're very critical to the whole notion of the smart. So we think that through historical reflection, we should be able to expand our understanding of the use of computers, of machines, of automated objects within our daily lives. And definitely synesthesia derives from that larger question of what is the process that links humans, machines, and spaces? And, and how can we navigate it better to understand the non-human versus human interactions within our environments? Working with the Thomas Jefferson University, which I understand is also a medical facility, there's an underlying purpose in this research, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So together with Severino, it was a year and a half ago when we started the initiative of the Synesthetic Research and Design Lab within the College of Architecture and the Built Environment at Thomas Jefferson University. And we found an exciting opportunity to see this platform as a both prototyping and scholarly platform where interactive design art and emergent health sciences can meet. So we have been very happy to collaborate with the Center for Autism and Neurobiodiversity, with actual patients that are on the spectrum. We have been collaborating with the Occupational Therapy Department of the University, so we try to see the crossings of these collaborations when it comes into the works that relate senses, humans, machines, and the built environment eventually. So we have a lot of support for our future projects from patients, from people that are under particular neurological conditions, and also medical field experts. In bringing it to the larger scale of the Venice Biennale, which is international, culturally diverse, etc., what is your hope it is conceived as a traveling work that we hope will engage a variety of people, a variety of communities and places. We did want to initiate ways of rethinking and engaging the notion of public. And we see it as an event that is not curated, it's dynamic, it's unexpected, that it does create a, a public and symbolic space that speaks to the idea of exchange. There's a lot of cultural information that someone can extract, even demographic data. So we do hope that the installation could eventually, if we document it correctly and set a series of evaluative criteria and different objectives, we do hope that it can become a cultural project. But we also want to move on. As much as we love beginnings of those thoughts with the making of this project, we also are ready to move on in works that built on top of this work. We actually see this as the first of a series. Right. of installations or prototypes. You know, you asked, what do we expect from it? Maybe we don't expect something very specific. We love the idea of 
not expecting too much from it. We already feel grateful that we were able to put in practice some of the scholarly ideas that we have been investigating. Both Severino and I, we have been very fascinated in looking at experiments of perception machines, as they used to call them, of the 1940s and the 50s. Those experiments were done by psychiatrists and, and neurophysiologists, by people in the medical fields, and they were trying to understand how the human brain works. So they were building electromechanical perception devices that were able to interact with the environment in very basic ways. So, you know... We've learned a lot by studying the work of these scientists. And again, it's considered to be quite unexpected in the fields of architecture because these researches are located in the periphery of the design field. One of the things that you mentioned, which I thought was interesting, is not having expectations. This goes back to something we were talking about before, the agency, the responsibility that designers feel, and the relinquishing of that agency, the letting it go as a very critical point, which I think is extremely difficult for Mm -hmm. designers. It happens all the time, whether we want it or not. Even if you design a building, a place, anything, once you do it, it's not yours anymore. People can deface it. They can love it. People can tear it down. It's over. And Mm -hmm. the ideas that live in you are the things that carry forward, perhaps into the next project and the next project. That is live. You own what's in your own investigation. That's all we own. I couldn't agree more. And, and I agree also with the way you put it. What really matters is the life after architecture, the way architecture has been appropriated by anyone. I am speaking today with Lucia Zafulia, whose works have focused both on belonging for refugee populations and with the connections between design, technology, and science, specifically how the human body interacts with objects and place. Have you started another project? Yeah, we recently got funds for starting a few more projects. These are all along the research lines that we just talked about. We're looking at two book publications and they're all collective efforts with experimental psychologists, with behavioral health scientists, with people with neurodiversity. As you said before, did you include the refugees? In this work, we want very actively to make authors, people that are actually in the spectrum or people that have neurological conditions and so on. So one of the book publication is currently under the tentative title, Neurodiversity, Build Community, Rethinking the Built Environment. This work follows a symposium we organized together with the Center for Autism and Neurodiversity in the fall of 2020, a collection of thoughts that will speak about ideas of inclusivity and accessibility of our built environments to people with neurodiversities. And then the second book publication is under the theme of performance as action. We are investigating ideas of the embodied mind. And this is a layered work. We are looking to include a series of drawing representations of those early perception machines I mentioned before. And simultaneously, we want to include scholarly pieces that unfold the dynamics between scientific methods and design processes. And again, we feel very grateful that in the past year we have closely collaborated with all of these people that come outside of the design fields. And then in the more applied work, we just got the funds to develop a prototype. We call it soft. It's going to be a prefabricated and deployable stress relief interactive prototype. Our target audience is obviously everyone, but particularly understanding the neurodiversity needs. 
This is a phased, long-term project that is designed to understand the impact of sensory interactive environments on our health. And we're working in collaboration with medical field experts and people with neurodiversities, but also their caregivers. We came to understand that the parents, the people that care for people that are neurodiverse are really key factors in the making of, of an experience. So we're looking to use this prototype also as a platform to create a series of evaluative criteria that could possibly inform the future making of such spaces. Also, we're looking to create a common language between ourselves, we're coming with design ideas, but also people from the sciences that really want to measure impact. They really want to have a series of criteria that evaluate the environment in a very concrete way. Very ambitious without a scientific background. Yeah, yeah. And we realize that. It feels to me like there's such a threading between a lot of your work from the transient spaces to this project at the Biennale to these new ideas, this sense of elasticity of territory, whether it's a small scale or a large scale, the need for elasticity, the question of elasticity. And even in your process, it's an elastic process because it's very inclusive and sometimes unexpected and undetermined, the input that you're getting from many sources, this elastic collaboration is not typical, but very, very needed. Yeah, thank you, Nina. That's a very generous comment. I have to say it's, we're trying. Yeah, very, very ambitious work and really fascinating. I don't know how you sleep. How do we all sleep? That's what I always wonder when I speak with friends and colleagues. You know, we enjoy it. That's what drives it. And it's important work. Yeah, yeah. We're excited. We're excited to go to Venice to see the reactions and see how the project will be consumed by people. Yeah, wonderful. Lucia, thank you so much for this conversation. I really look forward to listening to some of the talks and reading some of the books when they come out. And I hope our listeners will become engaged in your work as well. Thank you so much for the invitation. Dear listeners, thank you for being here. I invite you to reflect on what you've heard today and send your thoughts or stories. We would love to hear from you. Stay in touch on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website, thewearing.com. Subscribe free to Wearing wherever you get your podcasts so that you are alerted when the next episode airs. Wearing is a pro bono initiative of Dreamland Creative Projects, which provides architectural and interior design services for the places where we live, heal, age, and inspire. If you wish to have a design consultation, visit dreamlandcreativeprojects.com or email me, nina at dreamlandcreativeprojects.com. Until we meet again, goodbye from Waring.